0: Listener production. Okay, are you recording? Hello, welcome along to episode 13 of the Howie Games. Great to have you listening as always. Last week we came to you from the west coast of Africa, Namibia. Now we're on the east coast in Mozambique. What a country. This week we feature a young man by the name of Jake Edwards. I must warn you right at the start, parts of this episode discuss drug use, suicide and other very adult themes. So if your kids are fans of the Howie Games, maybe have a listen yourself and go from there. Jake is a young man from a famous footballing family who's been through the AFL system. Partway through his journey, Jake came to realise he was battling severe depression. We recorded this episode at Jake's office, where he is involved in a wonderful program helping teens called Outside the Locker Room. The program helps with personal development and support, amongst other things. Check out the website of the same name, Outside the Locker Room, and if you're involved in a sporting club, please get them along for a chat. They do some wonderful work and have helped out a lot of people. You'll hear in this episode at times, I guess I struggle to ask Jake the right questions and it was a long way out of my depth, but... Jake's frankness and courage to tell his story hopefully gets us through Partway through, Jake's is a very dark tale, but stick with it There is light at the end, and Jake is currently healthy and happy Please, share this episode with those you love Here is Jake's story Well Jake, welcome to the Howie Games Thanks mate, thanks for having me yeah, oh, Great to have you, ripping day outside Tell us a little bit about the building we're in at the moment And, and what sort of goes on here Yeah, great question. So we're
1: in uh, Middle Park at the moment. Uh, This is my office. Um, I run a company called Outside the Locker Room, which is a 12-month welfare program dedicated to working with local sporting clubs. Uh, So what goes on here, mate? Not a lot of work,
0: <laughs> <Perfect>.
1: <laughs> plenty of plenty of fun. So we it's it's a shared environment, which is great. So we've got different businesses from IT. We've got a development company upstairs, and they're all pretty young, you know, middle-aged blokes, and we all get along really well. And it wouldn't be uncommon to find us down At the pub on the corner
0: on a Friday night is Matt, catching any positions up? available that I could slide into oh, I'm, sure we, can, we I'm sure we can find a position for you in here mate no worries we'll get, at all we'll get on to exactly what you do but say we yeah. were sitting in the pub and I met you I said "Oh, g'day Jake my name's Howie what do you do what's yeah. your answer to that question
1: uh, immediately I probably specialise more in mentoring is probably my expertise at the moment um, so I I, I founded the company outside the locker room so that's what I spend 90% of my time working in now and as part of that is a key aspect to welfare and supporting young adults and I believe that there's a, a niche in the market that needs to be provided to local sporting clubs and that is the mentoring side of things not necessarily the clinician which are important, doctors, yep. psychologists, and people like that. Uh, but it's that first engagement step for young adults between the ages of 15 to 25 to connect with someone. And that's probably my strength as an individual is being able to connect with young people. Um, so I'd probably say, first thing i say is, yeah, I'm a, I'm
0: a strong mentor to a lot of young, young kids. It's been a really interesting path to get you there, which is obviously what we're here to talk about mm. today. And I'd imagine somewhere... It's funny because in the Howie Games I normally know the person um, and you're the first person I've sat down I don't know. So it's a little bit tricky like that Mm. in some ways. Um, You seem like a really open book though. I guess at some point we're going to get to a a reasonably low point, but if people are listening we hope to get you back up the other side of the mountain for for want of a better term in this conversation. So tell us about you. What's your first memory growing up? You grew up in on a farm?
1: Yes, yeah, so I grew up on a farm, a uh, little place called Exford, probably population of about 10 people. It's not mm. very big, but it's in between Backers Marsh and Geelong. Um, so mum and dad, uh, been there my whole life, um, and uh, two older brothers. So my earliest memories, mate, would be, you know, as young as probably four or five. You know, I think there's something pretty awesome about growing up on a farm, mm. two older brothers, motorbikes, dirt, you know, dirt bike riding. Freedom. Um, plenty of freedom. Plenty of freedom. We were speaking before, Harry, yeah, about... Ocean Grove, and yourself, and Bowen Heads, and just that that lifestyle, mate, something that I'm, you know, very grateful for as a young young man growing up. So, yeah, some of your best memories of. Mucking around with my brothers and building cubby houses, mate. Probably you know, every second week we'd have a new one out in the paddock somewhere, <laughs> and trying to build an architectural <laughs> kind of theme of some kind. It would never, look, it never looked like what you picture it in your head, but you know, that's kind of the probably the earliest memories that I have. Yeah. So it was
0: a happy lifestyle, obviously. Growing, you were a happy kid growing up.
1: Yeah, I was definitely. I think the the I was very, I'm very close with my mum now. Um. So basically, my middle brother is four years older than me. So when he was eighteen. My older brother was about 21, so I was 14 years of age. So when they were off driving and, you know, doing parties and girls and all that type of stuff or whatever, you know, I was still pretty young and, and, and hung out with mum. So, you know, I had, I had a very happy childhood. There was no issues there with me growing up at all. So I was very good at school, um, not academically, just I wasn't a, you know, I was, I was in line, didn't get in much trouble.
0: So, yeah, I didn't really have much of an issue growing up. Footy was obviously a big part of your life and what will sort of get to your footy career, but that was something that, been pretty prevalent in your family going back in history. There's a sort of rich history there and you were sort of following on that path. You love your footy? Love me footy, yeah. Always have, although there's
1: periods that I'm, I'll share with you where I actually absolutely hated football and resented it, um, which has probably um, probably caused a, a fair bit of me, me um, turmoil period of that four years. Um, but yeah, I mean, my, my great-grandfather played at the Footscray Football Club, played over 100 games there, was a steward sat on the board and the committee and stuff so he was a great uh, figure at that club did he win
0: was he involved in the premiership there? yeah well
1: my, that was that was my grandfather oh, right yeah. so Arthur Edwards he played in the 54 premiership for so all those
0: Doggies fans out well there they, the premiership does exist it, yeah,
1: they're, they're still holding on to it <laughs> <Believe> <laughs>
0: maybe me. this year yeah
1: maybe they're going pretty well at the moment um, so got a bit of a soft spot for the Doggies but yeah, so my grandfather played over 100 games there and played in the 54. And my old man's um, Alan Edwards, um, who played over 100 games combined with Richmond, Collingwood and Bulldogs as well. Yep. And then Shane O'Brien, who's me, who's my cousin, who's dad's sister's son. Right. And he played, obviously, you know, nearly 250 games at Collingwood and, and Brisbane. Yeah. So
0: at what stage did you realise that I'm probably better at footy my little bloke he's just started kick, and he came home the other day and he said oh I'm the best bloke there Dad." I'm like I'm not sure about that mate <laughs> but when did you he's only four behind you not short on confidence when did you having a kick or playing with your mates or playing in your local team start to think I'm reasonably good at footy here yeah good
1: question probably the, the first time I realised that football was going to be for me was um, during school holidays I used to go and help me old man because they run a plumbing company and they still do today my two older brothers run that and the old man goes to me, son. You know, I'm I'm glad you can play footy because you're not going to be a plumber. <laughs> so from that moment, I probably realised that you know what I'm. I'm I, you're right. I am pretty good at footy, and that was probably at about the age of 15, and i probably even younger, 14. And it's probably one of those things, mate. From probably under tens to 14, you kind of play footy just because it's, it's football and it's something yep. that you love, and especially in the country. Yeah, absolutely. And it's something that you just do for your mates on the weekend, and something you talk about at school during the week, and. It gets to a point when I was 14, 15, especially sixteen, where you, you do need to make a decision. And I guess being a good football at that age, byproduct of you know best and fairest, and being uh, part of interleagues and things like that, I never thought about it too much really until I was about sixteen years of age when I had to make a decision between football and cricket. Um, I made a um, I made the Victorian cricket. Um, team as well at 16. What did you bring to the table there? Oh, I was a bit of an all-rounder. Oh, yeah. yeah. not too bad. Okay. Yeah, well, generally first change. Right. Steam bowler, up and down. Right. Uh, Dashing a, middle order back? Oh, uh, no, yeah, very slog style okay. type of mentality. Well, perfect
0: IPL style, I T20. Bill and I picked footy <laughs> over cricket, I
1: tell you. She could be in the IPL oh, at the moment on 3.5. Yeah, every time I see the Big Bash every year, I'm, <laughs> I'm sweating. You know, I should be out there. should be on the big paychecks. But, um, yeah, so I, I, I had to make a decision and... Um, football and cricket was a big part of my life, and yeah, I remember me old man coming into my room one day and basically saying, "Look, son, you know you've got to you got to pick one or the other. You can't keep doing what you're doing. And your you, your mother and I are, uh, are right right behind you. Um, so you make a decision, and we'll support it." And he turned around and went to walk out, and he stopped, and he um, he turned around and, and come back. I'll never forget this. And he come back and he goes, "But you remember the the family history in football, don't you?" <laughs> And I'm like, yes, Dad, I know the family history. But, you know, obviously there was always that push for me um, being the youngest, I think, in the the generation there. Yeah, yeah, my my two older brothers missed the boat in terms of opportunity to play AFL footy. And um, I was always, I guess, targeted at a young age. I was going to be the best Edwards footballer coming through. And my grandfather was very, you know, um, impactful in that. Rumors, I would say, in spreading them. Um, But... I definitely felt the pressure, but I also, it was a, it was a path that I knew that I, I did want to take. So do what you want, son, but make sure I was playing footy. Exactly.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so it, it, it progresses along. I guess you're playing Tap Cup? Tap Cup? Were you playing cup, down yeah. for the
1: Falcons? Or? No, I actually just missed out by about five kilometres to the. Mum and dad tried to get me to go play at Geelong right. uh, because of obviously the country kind of the aspect that my dad enjoyed, but I actually fell within the Western Jets region because right. it's so close to back of march yeah. so um yeah, so i played play the western jets um yeah in the, the brad johnson squads from under 14s right up until um under 16s i played a couple games as a as a 16 year old in the actual under 18 competition under lee tutor as a coach um got some great experience there represented vic metro
0: as a under 16 year old and then kind of played bottom age yeah at the jets and then it progresses along. It's obviously going pretty well at the Jets and it gets to a, a draft-type yeah. situation, which yeah, is when it's starting it. to get pretty serious for a young boy. Yeah, pretty, uh, mate, it probably starts to get serious even by under
1: 16 Metro, really. Right. Like I, I've noticed a lot of pressure, performance-based stuff as well, you know. Like you feel, even as a young man, still trying to find yourself as a footballer, even just as a person, you know, and the pressure you'd feel if you didn't get a kick, you know, that's probably when I started feeling that anxiety.
0: How would you deal with the pressure? Um,
1: oh, look, it's probably just something you just pushed aside and just thought, you know what? Just this must just be normal. It's just part of being an athlete. You just kind of get on with it and move on. But it made um, you
0: anxious, didn't it?
1: Absolutely, definitely. Yeah, and there's no doubt at all. And um, I remember my first as a bottom age player at the Jets. Mark Neal was was my was my coach, um, and he he was brilliant for me. He was someone who really. Um, Pushed me and, and mentored me. Um, and he's probably the real reason as to why I got drafted at the end of that, that year as a bottom major. Because my first five, six games as a bottom age Jets player, I mean, I was, I was sh- shocking. Really? You know, I could hardly get a kick, and um, everyone didn't know what was going on. And I, I felt the pressure of kind of me, me name and, and everything like that coming through, and the expectation probably got a hold of me. And uh, so Neil, he pulled me aside and just said, Look, mate, you're, you're, you're a strong individual in this club. You know, we, we, I want to put you down center off back. Um, I just want you to follow the best forward down there and learn how to play as a as a backman. Um, but little did I know as I was doing that, I was actually learning on how to be a great forward and center forward because yeah. essentially as a backman, you learn kind of as a, you know, what the forwards don't like doing. So then after about five or six games, I started playing good footy. He threw me down forward again. So I learned kind of what backs don't like you to do as a forward. So yep. um, from that experience, I've, I finished a year really strong And probably got 90% of the games You know Best on Kicked a few bags And Yeah you know, i probably owe that To Nildy For that experience As a bit of mentorship During that time
0: He got me drafted You mentioned Or we'll get to getting drafted At the moment Of the mm-hmm. Navy Blues You mentioned anxiety Mick Fanning Obviously three time World champion surfer And he said at the start of the year He was going to take Part of the year off and he went out at his first event up there on the Gold Coast hmm. and he just smashed it. And he said, oh, I, I, the freedom. I yeah. just I had no pressure on me. If if the athlete, any athlete out there could find a way to release the mind out there, it'd be just, you know, yeah, they would perform to a whole nother level, wouldn't they?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think you know, there's a – part of my education today is I, I really want – Over the next four to five years, to get involved with AFL clubs and working with their first and second year players, especially, and educating them around the importance of essentially, you know, football isn't everything. Even though right now you think that it is and it's important, it's a full time Mm. wage. There's a there's a real clarity that brings to your life in terms of understanding that there is an importance to have things going on outside of football, and by doing that, you get a bit of a mental release. And that's not I, I didn't have that. During my time, so you at were just footy, footy, it was just footy, footy, footy. footy. It, it'd been that way ever since I was nine years, nine years of age. And I guess the the difference was that there was no one around the club at that time at Carlton. That there was a mentor, or a guidance support system in place, so someone can come back and say, you know what, you know, do something away from the game. They try and encourage you to do study, but half of it's not realistic. Um, you know, if you can't meet certain schedules of appointments and, and assignments and that, universities don't hold up because you're a footballer. No, um, you, you become we'll, we'll,
0: you become that footballer that takes 12 years to get a three year degree, don't you? you?
1: Exactly, and also you, um, it, it probably contributes to even further stress and anxiety because it, you, sometimes footballers we're travelling to state and you come home from training and after you got your ass flogged, the last yeah. thing you want to do is get the laptop out and do some study. So it can kind of contribute in those ways. So I'm all about, and you're right, mate, any athlete who has other interests outside of the game, whether it's, um, you know, fashion or another business or music or something going on. A release. Yeah, and you speak to all the older players, you know, that's generally where they've got two through experience, you know. So you're the Petries and that, and look, Brent Harvey and boys yeah. all that hair, they've lasted so long. Yeah. I'm sure the conversation you can have would be that, you know, it's some point, they realised that there's better interest away from the game, just as much.
0: I think a lot of that comes for those guys too, and they have a family as well. And you yeah, know, they, they say their focus changes. But I, I guess for you, it, uh, your name gets called out to the Carlton Footy Club. This is uh, what this is everything you've you've wanted, and I guess in some ways, everything your family's wanted. It must have been a pretty momentous occasion.
1: Yeah, it was absolutely. We um, it was a, it was an interesting moment. We I was down Ocean Grove, and we. Leading up to the draft, I I had a few conversations with a few clubs like Sydney, Ricky Barham coming in a few times to to the house and um, Port Adelaide Footy Club and Craig Cameron was a massive fan of me and he was at Richmond uh, sorry Melbourne at the time and they were really super keen and they well kind of had an idea that perhaps they were going to pick me up with their first selection which is number fourteen in t- two thousand and five and. We listened to that portion of the draft, and once pick fourteen got called out, which was Nathan Jones, so I'm not a bad player, you know. What I mean? So two hundred, yeah. So he's a pretty good player and a good bloke too. Actually, I played footy with him as a junior, and he. Um, so once that happened, I go, oh, yeah. What's the point of listening? There's no point. You know, let's go. Let's head off. So I jumped in the car with my brothers and a mate. We went off to start playing golf, and we're on our way to golf, and that's when obviously it happened. And Mum and Dad were listening, and and Mum called me, and as you can imagine, you hear the stories all the time. Very hysterical moment and you know bring turn the car around went back to the house and the old man and everyone was there and it was a very proud moment there's no doubt
0: it was the best moment in your life to that point
1: it is yes i haven't had children yet yeah um, but i'm sure um it'll be right up there so it was yeah it's just such a such a relief at that point um because yeah i mean the, the name edwards attached to me growing up where it was a lot of high expectation and for that to happen in the first year of being Potential draft, so I was a bottom age pick. Yeah, it just removed a lot
0: of pressure that I thought I was going to experience going into the next year. Relief's an interesting word, isn't mm. it? Like you said, it's possibly the best moment of your life. Yet relief is a. Yeah, that's an interesting adjective to use in that situation. Like I would have thought you might have said joy or ecstasy or just absolute stoke, but you've you've gone no, with relief. Yeah, definitely relief. Yeah, I yeah. mean yes, it was a joyous
1: occasion and it was exciting, um, but it was it was more so relief that I'd actually achieved
0: the same thing that five people for me and my family have done. And then you roll in there and I guess you're back at the bottom of the mountain again.
1: That's it. That's how it works. Yeah, yeah essentially. And
0: then all the you
1: think you've worked hard up to that moment, and then it all starts again. So we. I remember walking in the club for the first time and, um, you know, I'll never forget this moment as well, walking down the stairs there at um, Princess Park at the time and Anthony Coutafidi's walked up. And this is someone through the 90s who I admired, just like, you know, Wayne Carey and people like that and Tony Modras of the world. um, I mean, he put his hand out and actually he knew my name, and I was, I was shaking. My hand was, was like that, and I could barely even, yeah, the really girly handshakes yeah. you have. I'm pretty sure it was one of them. Oh, no. And I'm thinking, oh, I've stuffed it up for a first impression. The old man always said that he makes you look up in the eyes and squeeze a hand. Good, you know? tough handshake. And you're I've from stuffed the country. that up. And there goes that. Anyway, so um, no, nah, but I remember that moment very vividly, and, you know, that was probably a surreal experience. Um, but the hard work starts then, and I was, I, I bought into that. Throw yourself yeah. into it absolutely yeah and essentially the first two years of my career at Carlton that's all I wanted to to do was um, uh, work my ass off you know earn the respect of the group uh, I wanted people to look at me as if I'm a hard worker and I deserve to be here um, there was a, that thing with people even back home like yeah you know, he's not drafted because of his name and, and stuff yeah. like that and I, I wanted to prove a, a few points early on that's not the case and the ability should speak for itself and First two years, I felt like I did that, mate, you know, at the club. And it was a it was a, a tough period because even as a young bloke, yeah, you, you still think you're better than everyone else at the club. And I remember Dennis Pagan was there. And I remember going to – I'm pretty sure he got sick of me in the first two years because every second week I'd walk in and say, well, when am I going to play? Why aren't yep. I playing? Um, but him and I had a, had a good relationship, Pags and I. And he, w- what I loved about Dennis was is that he was very upfront and honest, but he, he was fair. Um, so what I liked about Dennis was is, you know, if he'd tell you to go away and work on something as a footballer and where your weaknesses are. And if you actually showed progression in that space, he'd be the first one to give you a pat on the ass. if not pay you and the seniors because of your development in right. that area. So, you know, he,
0: he was very hard but very fair. Yeah. So you, you worked along, and you eventually got your first senior game. It's The one. Yep. Wow. Yeah, it's a pretty good moment. Well, it's what every second kid in this part of the world grows up wanting to do, rightly or wrong. They yeah. want to play for their footy club. That's
1: right. Yeah. So that moment came, and um, yeah, I remember I was just doing a video review with Robert Harvey at the time. He was he was my kind of line coach, and then Brett Montgomery. And and yeah, so Brett uh, Brett Ratton, who was a, was the change in the at the top there, and he uh, pulled me aside and. And said, "Yeah, mate, we're gonna we're gonna play round one this year in 2008, um, which was against Richmond, uh, which was Juddy's first game as well." And ninety thousand MCG. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty pretty big. It was about eighty eight, I think it was. And I kept wow. telling Juddy, "They're all come to watch me, and, <laughs> and, and not him." But look, I, I think I might have got that a little bit little bit wrong. No, I'm um, going with I would say But it's it, it's funny, mate. Even like there's a few stories as well. Even the year before, leading up to that. Um, when the handover was made with Pagan left and um, and Rats came into it. And within four days of Rats being in, in as a head coach, he came down the locker rooms and he told me um, leading to a game against Werriam in the VFL, he goes, mate, just uh, he sat down in my locker and he goes, mate, just get through this week and we, we, we're going to play you for the next six games for the rest of the year just to see where you're at and get you a taste of footy so you can go into pre-season motivated for the following year. I'm thinking, how good's this? You know, yeah. I'm going to—I'm guaranteed the last six games. I get a chance to show myself, and, buddy, just the way the, the footy gods worked, I went out that weekend in the first quarter. I went to pick a footy up, and my foot got caught underneath my opponent and dislocated me my left ankle, and um, I end up missing the rest of the season because of that. So, yeah, you know, that that was a buddy, you know, a bit of a kick in the, the kicking the guts after all the work that I'd done to get to that point. And being prominent, I just wish he hadn't told me. I don't know why the footy guys just said, "Ah, oh, that's yeah. not going to happen. So um, so that I spent that preseason working me, me bum off um, to get back to where where I was. And, you know, ultimately I was rewarded on the back of some good nab cup form. Um, and then, yeah, played round one, which was, a, which was a great game. And I wish I had a kick strike because I kicked one goal four and um, I had a few possessions, which was good. Um, but, yeah, so it's funny how I was speaking to a guy yesterday about this and... It's funny how if I, you know, in my mind, I think she imagine if I kick five goals on debut, like that almost gives you at least a ten, fifteen game. My oh, word, it does. You know, clear run. Yep. So in that case, I relieves play, that
0: pressure a little bit. It
1: does, you know, and it's almost the expectation. Well, she just keep and play. And you can play on the big stage. So let's we have to play him for the next ten weeks and yeah. see what happens. Um, where I think, you know, you drafted from round one to. Uh, sorry first at 20 you're probably you're given that luxury early on um where i was picked 36 you know and my opportunity came it's just funny how things can work out sometimes and you kind of think shit if I hadn't gone that way maybe i'd still be playing football today given the opportunity was there so but that's the way it is my place St Kilda the following week and i probably didn't have as good a game kicked the goal had a few touches and then I found it pretty quickly. My place in that team was as a, as a um, insurance player, right? Um, so essentially, so, so. W- when um, blokes like um, uh, who's a big fella's name now, yeah, the Ruckman cruiser. cruiser, and that, like when he when he wasn't playing, I was in. When he was available, you know, I was out, and that type of thing. So, so h- how
0: did that? Obviously, we're going to get to the point where things went. Oh, for one of a better expression off the rails for you, things didn't yep. go well. So at this point, you, are you still that young, ha- happy bloke from the country, or are you the bloke that's starting to, at some point, think, "Oh, I'm not quite right." Yeah, it, it's hard to yeah. ask questions about Jake when you have no understanding understand, of what you're yeah. asking about. You know, yeah, what I mean? yeah for
1: sure. Yeah, I, I get, yeah, I get that a lot, Howie, You know, and people are kind of not sure how to go and ask me questions, and I just say to everyone, "Look, just, just ask me straight up." But know? it's still Isn't hard it? to know
0: what question to, to ask. ask at the right time because, yeah. I, in my mind, I want to say, "Would." Well, did you have a, a, some episode uh, or something? Yeah. An episode or a feeling of darkness. And I think, Oh, is darkness right? I don't know. Mm, Yeah. Um, So, but but did things started to not go as well as they had been at this point or not? Yeah. So, I mean,
1: at the age of 19, when I was at Carlton, I, I was diagnosed with depression. Right. Um, so leading up to that moment, I was experiencing a lot of, um, emotional, um, roller coasters. um, which would be one minute I'd be you know, extremely happy and, and, and content with where I was and what I was doing. And then some mornings, mate, probably 80% of the time, I just I didn't want to get out of bed, didn't want to see people, just want to isolate myself. And just, you know, I, even the, the thought of looking at my phone and speaking to someone would just it'd put fear in me and, and create a lot of anxiety.
0: Explain, uh, explain what you mean by to put fear in you.
1: Yeah, it's almost like a um, uh, probably the best way explains that if you know if you get up and speak in front of a group of people, yeah, you know, and people are very fearful of doing yep. that, and I, I would have that even with my partner at the time. See that to have her around me, I, I'd have that sense of fear in me. It's like she was judging me or thinking I wasn't good enough, or you know, I just I just had this complete isolation away from people and wanted to be away from everyone. So that correlated into me. My performance on the football field. Um, so, that 2008 year was a very much an up and down year emotionally, which was combined with the mental health. There's no no doubt with the um, medication and stuff that I was on. But, but
0: before you get to the medication, did mm, you have any idea what was going on, and who do you first talk to? And yeah, what do so the you, club do doctor. Say?
1: Yeah, the club doctor was the first one I spoke to. So essentially, how cool. got how I got into the doctor was I had a breakdown. Um, uh, playing at VFL level, and I was it. It's when I was in and out of the team, and I just I had enough, and I just felt like I didn't want to be here anymore. And it wasn't necessarily the fact that I wasn't playing senior footy; it was just that emotionally, I just I couldn't handle it anymore. So I actually went back to the farm. So I went home and left Carlton, um, and didn't want to be there, and, and just left and went home. Didn't go to training. What does that mean? A breakdown? Um, just a complete spiral, mate. Emotionally out of control. Yeah, just fucking cracked it. Didn't want to be around people. Um, just grabbed all my stuff and went home, yeah, and just went back to mum and dad where I felt comfortable on the farm and Roddy Ashman was the welfare guy at the time and he actually came out to the farm and we sat around the table at mum and dad's and, yeah, he basically convinced me to come back.
0: What did your mum and dad say? Club. This is their, their happy-go-lucky son.
1: Yeah, it was a bit of a shock for him, but I think like any parents, they're you know, supportive in what's going on. And well, absolutely. It, they didn't completely understand that My old man, as I know now, had been experiencing mental health depression issues for many years before right. even i was diagnosed and you know he, he kind of knew what was going on that sense of um understanding and i even hearing stories from him at one stage in his career at richmond he went he went back home as well because he just couldn't deal with the expectation and and, and i guess that um, figure of being a footballer um yeah so we kind of have similar stories in that case i think he understood Mum was very protective and thought it was the kind of the football club and not treating me well, whatever it may be. But at the end of the day, man, I just I didn't want to be there. I uh, felt like whether it's completely my own perception on things, but I didn't feel like I, I genuinely fitted in to the group. Um, that was due to my own insecurities and, and probably feeling of not being included and things like that. And it just probably got the better of me um, in my emotions at the time. So with depression, it's a, it's an interesting one because it yeah, it is your perceived reality on, on a lot of things. Um, so whether that was real or not, I'm sure if you asked all the blokes at the footy club when I was there, they probably had a perception of me of everything was fine. Yeah, you know, I looked like I had all me, me shit together. But inside, oh, first as soon as I as soon as I had to leave the club, I was first to go because I didn't want to be there and get home. And when I got home, it was a matter of just sitting on the couch and not doing anything, being demotivated. Um, So there's a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff that kind of contributed
0: to that 2008 period. So if you hadn't been – say you'd been working on the farm, Mm. for example, in a less pressured environment, for want of a better term, would you reckon it would have happened? Uh, yeah, I do. Yeah, I do. I, I I have thought of that. So it would have come to you at some stage Yeah, in I life? think
1: it would have, yeah. So I think what what happens is is that generally my opinion is how is that? I think we all experience some form of depression at some stage in our lives mm. and whether it's for one week, two weeks or whatever it may be, we all go through what we call like a slump or a bit of a, a, bit of a pickle, what do you want to call it? Yeah. Some of us um, <laughs> might, like I said, can deal with it quite quickly and get over it and move on and life is, is easy for them where as some of us just can't... Can't process that um, understanding and logically, I would look at my life and family. Are brilliant, you know. Grew up on a farm, had had everything there. Freedom wasn't an issue. Um, finances was, was was never a problem. Playing being a footballer, um, I had an amazing, attractive girlfriend at the time. Fit, healthy. I'm looking at my life, going. Oh, you're flying, yeah. Why am I feeling like this? Why do I feel like there's constantly a, a foot on my chest, and I can't just break this um, uh, emotional rampage that's going on in my head with that conflicting? You shouldn't be here. Get away. You know, no one, no one thinks you're any good, or you know, that real self doubt would kick in, and then you just say, "Oh, what's the point? This is just too hard," and, and you get out of there. So it really, it, you become a very cloudy and muggy in the mind. So decision-making becomes very, very challenging. And the frustrating thing is that you can't make a clear decision. And that's where you get angry and resentment against people. And that's where you tend to push people away in your life as well. So I couldn't hold down a relationship um, during that time. And even when I did have a relationship, I wasn't really, really in it. Um, but yeah, so that I, I do think that whether it would have came at that moment, but it would have come up eventually in my life when things would have become stressful or, or anything like that.
0: A short break from Jake's story for a moment to tell you about next Thursday's episode of the Howie Games. A man who I idolised growing up. Stoked to bring to the table the great white shark himself, Greg Norman.
1: Oh, look, I'll be—I'll tell you the truth. I mean, there's times when I've gone down to my beach and sat down there and just taken a, a couple of beers on my own and just got away from people. Uh, most of the time, not most of the time, I would say I'm very good with my friends and family where I don't want to show my hurt to them because it, to me, it's—it's it's, as I, I keep repeating it, it's just a game. But at the same time, I think it's also important for you, the individual like me, uh, to express to myself the the, the hurt. Um, and that's why I do it on my own. I just took a couple of beers, went down the beach, sat down and, and shed a tear.
0: Greg Norman on next week's episode of the Howie Games, talking golf, life, winning, losing, business and so many other topics. Time now to go back to Jake. So you, you go back to the Carlton footy club. I think you probably yep. played a few more games. You might end up on five or so games. And yep. it was it a natural conclusion with you on the footy club? Were they saying it's not working out? Or were you saying it's not working out?
1: Yeah, so, I mean, the, the, there was an aspect. And when I share my story today with a lot of young adults, it's, it's essentially that de- depression. Well,
0: that's just the printer in the background. And that's all right. Printer? No, that's all right, mate. We'll just right. let that do a bit of printing. <laughs> We'll let her do its job. Is this your invoice you're printing out (laughs) for (laughs) me? Could be.
1: (laughs) I think she's done. Yeah, done, perfect. Yeah, so, I mean, part of the story is it's not about – I don't want people to think the message of depression is what caused my um, termination of my football career because it it contributed to it from a point of view that I lacked the motivation and commitment at times when I needed it. As an athlete, you need to be there 100% of the time and I just didn't want to be there. So – it was, a, it was one of those things where at the age of 19 when I signed my first contract, uh, which was on, you, know, I go, you go from, I went from making 60000 65000 a year to 180000 There was a component of that as well where I did get caught up in the lifestyle of being an AFL footballer. Yeah. And that was essentially that, you know, the money, the, the, the stardom and all that type of stuff. And I did get ahead of myself. So not only did the performance drop away, but I probably thought I was a bit hard done boy. Because I was in and out of the team over the, over that year, and I knew that players were playing that I was better then Because on the training track, I was I was dominating, but yep. I felt like I was that insurance player. Um, so I probably got a, I probably became a little bit arrogant at times as well in the last couple of years of my of my career, and I felt like I was in control of the mental health side of things as well. So I pushed that aside, didn't want to deal with it anymore, and just tried to focus on my football, um, but. By the time I realized that my career was coming to an end, it was probably a little bit too late for me. Yeah, um, My performances were in and out. I would play four good weeks and then, you know, go missing for five or six and, you know, it would just be a roller coaster there as well. And by the time I thought, oh, shit, what, Jake, what are you doing, mate? You know what I mean? Like I, I get that you're struggling at home perhaps at times, but, you know, your, your opportunity to extend your career is coming to a, a quick, quick end and to my own credit for the last eight weeks of my career I I played really good footy and I committed myself emotionally physically spiritually to the game and I started playing good football and but like I said it it was too late for me I already had a black line through my name um so when you come to the end of season review with the coach and you know Brett Ratman was in the room and Shane O'Sullivan is the the manager at the time and I remember going in there and I kind of knew I kind of expected that they were just going to you know move on but they actually offered me another year contract to, to stay on um, because of my last eight games and my performance but there was a, a strong part of me that knew that I, I I didn't want to be there I just felt like the Carlton Football Club for me wasn't the environment that I needed St- um, from a stability point of view mentally as well um, To I, I just I needed to get out so I just stood up and I shook Brett's hand and Shane's hand and just said look I appreciate the opportunity but I'm out I can't be here anymore. Um, So, yeah, I turned around and walked out. It's a bold declaration, isn't it? That was it, yeah. And I just – I knew – and the opportunity was for me to stay on, um, which I think, you know, looking back, yeah, probably could have worked out for the better in terms of extending my career. There's no doubt. But um, I don't regret walking out when I did because I know emotionally if I had stayed, it probably would have been a devastating end to to what ultimately – where it got to in the end, anyway.
0: So you, you walk out of there, but uh, you, yep. uh, there's a lifeline for one of a better term. The, is the Bulldogs? The Bulldogs. That's the, right. Your old, yeah, your grandpa has old club. Yeah, yeah, So I, you know, I had a I had a couple of. Craig Cameron was
1: at um, the Richmond Footy Club uh, at the at the time, and he he was the guy at Melbourne who tried to get me there when I get draft pick, and he wanted me to come and train there. Um, but I thought, well, how good's this? You know, like family fairy tale. Great grandfather, grandfather, dad's played there. You know, I'm, oh, fuck, I feel like I'm at home here. Yeah. You know? I remember walking in the Witten Oval and just feeling. I uh, me, me pops' names all over the wall. Me dad's there. i uh, be me, me great grandfather's photos. As soon as you walk in, I'm thinking, you know, this is where I'm meant to be. So I, I, I took that image stride, and um, I remember I, I actually changed management stupidly, looking back now, um, from Paul Connors to Ricky Nixon at the time, um, and Ricky got me to. Bulldogs through Rodney Ead. Now, normally, what should happen is is that through that period, the the AFL club have to pay you a weekly kind of wage. It was like four hundred bucks or something like that a week just to train to
0: be there. This is the Bulldogs now. This is the Bulldogs, yep. yeah. So,
1: but the Bulldogs told me they go, look, well, we want you to be here, but we can't pay you, so you'll have to train here and not be paid. And I'm like, well, yeah, that's I'll do it. There's no issues because I want to play at this footy club. Yeah. So I committed to that, and look, I, you're going from Carlton's culture into the Western Bulldogs at that time. You know, blokes like um, you know Boydie Ackermanis, um, who a lot of people may say some bad things about Jason, but the relationship I had with him was was brilliant from a leadership point of view. Uh, Barry Hall, um, you know, when Griffin was there, um, even now, um, blokes like um, uh, Murphy in that as well, and that culture was just completely. Different, and it's just something that I felt like I fitted into, and they really welcomed me there. And um, Dale Morris and myself got along really well. Um, good, good mate of mine, and also um, Daniel Cross as well. And I, tr- mate, I got there. And stand up, I,
0: fellas. Those folks you mentioned, just stand up, blokes. Just
1: rippers, absolutely ripper guys. And away from the footy field, they just were, were solid individuals, and you could look at them as role models. And at this time, I was 22 years of age, or 20, 20, yeah, 22 years of age, and you couldn't have asked for better people at your football club and i thought this is it this is where i want to be i'm, I'm gonna play football here at this footy club and train the house down mate. I, I've, I've never trained so hard in my life and i figured that this is my last chance um and it's almost like all that mental health stuff and that was still was still there because there was times i remember driving home from training from the bulldogs and everything would just hit me at once you know like oh, what if this isn't happening Excuse me, I'm not getting paid to be here. Financially, I was under stress. You're taking medication um, at this time? I was stage. on medication at the time, right. and I was I was on and off medication. What's it do for you? Uh, medication, essentially what it does is, is that um, it helps you make decisions better right. in, a, in a really dumbed-down fashion. So there's... A part of the brain produces a chemical which basically, which is serotonin, which is which helps our mood levels stay more consistent, yep. which keeps us happy, I guess, at times. So for people like myself who experience depression, our serotonin levels aren't as high as a regular person. So the best way I was described as what medication does for your, for your brain is by the doctor. And he essentially said, picture your serotonin level in your brains in a bucket it's just water in a bucket and serotonin and all of our buckets have some holes in it and it'll drop down but the, the everyday person has ways that the serotonin will increase back up right and it's fine but for me i just had i've got a lot more holes in that bucket so my serotonin would go from there and she boom just drop really fast so i'd go from feeling okay to to feeling like absolute shit, and not wanting to be there at all um so the medication what I was explaining was that it helps clog up those holes, so it balances your mood levels and your serotonin levels out a lot, lot easier. Right. So therefore, you're able to process scenarios and situations like decision making and things like that become a lot easier, uh, because when you're in an emotional period, trying to make a basic decision around, you know what what you should wear for the day is bloody hard because you, you're trying to think about other stuff. Decisions and that just simple. Really that simple. Yeah. So. Right. it it helps you more clarity I guess in your life Um, and it plays it's a really important part when someone goes through an episode they do medication is important for that first intervention period um, because it does settle and it does allow you to to, to relax a little bit more and you do get the opportunity to think a little clearer, clearer and be able to make better decisions on the back of that um, I personally don't think it's a, a long-term sustainable method, uh, which I experience later on. Um, but medication is a is a critical aspect to that. But there's also a lot of byproducts of medication as well. Um, you know, your your motivation and energy can be can be dwindled as well. Um, so although it's it helps you get around and do things and stuff like that, you're certainly not jumping out of out of bed to keep get going and doing stuff. Which is hard when you're forging your career as a professional athlete. That's right. So getting the training every day was still a struggle, um, but it was one that at the Bulldogs I felt like, you know, this is my last chance to try and extend my career. Yep. Which outweighed, I guess, that that demotivation to try and not get there. So what happened? So essentially the Bulldogs made, I was promised the world and given an atlas. Um, right. And for me – you know, I, mean, I sat down with Rodney when I first got there. Now, the footy club gave me no 100% guarantees, um, which Rodney had told me, but the conversations that we had one-on-one in his office was both before the draft is that, yep, the happy. The whole club was happy with how it was training and they were gonna draft me in come draft day. And I was like, great, it's what I want. I wanna be here, I'm super excited. Draft day come, didn't happen. Um, and I was training at the time on the draft and I just assumed that, you know, I'll be a Bulldogs player by the end of the day. Didn't happen. I was like, okay, no worries. Fair enough. And I remember I, I bumped into Rodney after the draft and I said, Mate, well, what, what happened? And he basically said, look, they didn't expect for um, a certain player to be available when he was. So they took him over me. And I thought, okay, that's that's fine. Except that I said, well, you know, what what's the vision moving forward? And he said, well, rookie list, you know, no, no worries. You know, we're definitely going to pick you up there. And I'm like, great, I can I can deal with that. Uh, given that I feel like I'm at home here, and and I reckon I can really give a push to become a senior player, and so that was all good. Um, and then the day before the rookie draft, the, the, they told us, look, you don't need, don't train, don't come in tomorrow, just spend a day with your family, um, and go to what you got to do, and then just come back in or whatever the next the next day, and. I remember it mate i was sitting on uh, i was in south melbourne and i was sitting on clarin street having a coffee with my partner at the time um and I, I we weren't even listening to the to the draft because we just thought it was going to happen um and then yeah she got a message from her mum um saying that um yeah my name hadn't been called out um how long does a rookie draft go for right. and i'm like oh i'm not sure i like, that's a bit bit strange And then about five minutes later, my mum called me and just said, it's finished. What what happened? I'm like, what are you talking about? She's like, well, your name hasn't been called out and they've picked such and such. And I'm like, well, that's not right. Um, And then then all all of a sudden it just hit me that that was it. And ever since that moment, I remember sitting there and basically just in a complete blankness and just sat there and from that moment till you and I sitting here right now, I'd never heard from... Yeah, the, the, the football club. In terms nothing of, at all. Oh, Nothing, not not even a, a message or a text or an explanation or... you try and follow them up or nah. it was no. it's just a cutthroat caper, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is. And at the time, you don't like to try and, I guess, accept that. But now, looking back, you, you understand the business side of the industry. However, you would have thought as an employer, any employee, potential employee, you let go, you, you'd have a conversation with as to why and how. Um, but, yeah, so, I mean, that for me, mate, was the I guess the turning point um, where I mentioned before how I hated footy. It was about 20 minutes after that experience that I thought "Oh, I've committed my whole life to becoming an athlete and to want to play AFL footy for, for me and my family, and it's just ripped me apart, and that's it. Can't stand it. Hate it.
0: So what happens then mate you you since you were seven or eight that's what you want to do and yeah. it hasn't happened and obviously it, you know for any person that's travelling along okay that's going to be something to deal with if if you if you do have a few issues popping up in your life I guess it makes it even more difficult so so what path do you go down then
1: Yeah so I guess the way I explain to people to help them understand I Imagine the probably the, the biggest thing in your life right now, how Let's say it's your, your career in, in Channel 10 and Triple M. MMM. Yep. Let, let's imagine tomorrow you woke up and it wasn't there, gone. And you're never going to see it ever again, you know. And yeah, it's I know, a bizarre
0: way to look at life, isn't it? It is.
1: And it's all of a sudden everything you've known for the last however long in your career um, is completely gone. And for me, that's all I knew was to be an athlete and then be a footballer um, so when that was ripped away part of me went with it and that part of me was a, a, probably a strong 98% of who Jake Edwards was up to that time and um, that's why I'm very passionate about working with young uh, footballers now around you know it can be here one minute and gone the next like it was for me um, and unless you build on you know building yourself up as as Jake Edwards not Jake Edwards the AFL footballer um, when it leaves you, you need to have something else there, which I, I didn't have. Um, you,
0: you were just Jake Ed was the football.
1: I was just Jake Ed mind. was the AFL that football mate in my mind, and that's all I was going to be for the rest of my life. Yeah, right. Because um, w- when you're in the moment, mate, you, you're not you're not th- you're not what 17 to 21, 22 years of age. You're not thinking about when you're 25 no. or even beyond. You know, for me, I was going to play AFL until I was 30, 35, and which point you're at, old man y- exactly. Right. 22, 35s. That's yeah. it. It's the end of your life exactly, and then I would have made enough money over that period. And I would have had houses all around Melbourne, and I would have been happy, and things would have been rosy. The dream, exactly. So it didn't work out that way, as I've just explained, but yeah. So for me, that moment um, was what I call the four year cyclone, um, where it kind of just resented everything and everyone in my life. And I didn't have no boundaries on that, and that included family, that included friends, and that included loved ones who had cared about me for a very long time and supported me through that whole period of my AFL career. I resented the world and hated everyone in it, um, and I just didn't want to be around anyone. And I, 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 a byproduct of my mentality at that point was um, the partner I was with at the time gone. Everything else that was with it went gone. Uh, we had a house and that together. Um, you know, we, we were in court for 12 months. That ripped me apart. Um, I went from having about $80,000 in the account at that time to about 12 months or a little bit over to about 18 months later, having 18 cents in my account. That's um, it. That's it. It's um, obviously a
0: difficult thing to talk about, mate.
1: If I, well, it is, yeah, definitely. Even talking about it um, still brings up a little bit okay. of a, a bump. Can, as it would. Yeah. And so, um, so
0: where did the money go? This is just well. just...
1: A lot of it was towards partying right. and drinking and ultimately drug use. Um, but there's a portion of it as well that was just living expenses as well. Yeah, every day driving and getting around and stuff like that. But also, you know, lawyer cost, yeah. mate, was, it cost me about 20 grand um, in lawyer fees, um, which is money I didn't – because when I left the game, I wasn't interested in getting a job because I couldn't – I didn't want to do it and i was trying to do my own things along the way and try and make some money here and there but um, there wasn't enough money coming in everything was just going out and, out and, out. and i thought it'd be fine get down to 60 grand I'd be fine to keep going and going next thing you know once this the house stuff happened you know i, I actually um yeah, i lived in my car for nearly two weeks yeah after that and in your car yeah in my car you know i used to stay in, along port melbourne beach down here um some people might be familiar with the port melbourne life-saving club yeah there's actually uh, showers and, and that in there and that's where i used to get up out of the car and shower most mornings um, and then go to work who i was working with an ex-business partner of mine and i know people probably listening and thinking well, you know what about your family or your friends and you're right mate i i had a family there that i could go to but I felt like I let everyone down and I felt like that if I went to them right now and told them that I was where I was, how disappointing are they going to be in me? And that wouldn't be the case. You know, mum and dad would have taken me in that worries. My brothers would have have looked after me, but there was a massive ego thing there and a pride that got in the way of, of I felt like I failed and let everyone down. I couldn't possibly let them think that I allowed myself to get to this point and I just tried to hang on as long as I could. Until it got to the point that my brother found out through my ex-partner. Um, so he kind of snapped into the gear and, and I went and stayed with him and, and things kind of got back on to track a little bit. Um, but I was still struggling financially quite a lot. Um, I was playing football um, back home in the country by then. Enjoying um, it? No. Right. I was only playing it because it's a good money. Yeah. Okay. I was getting paid $1,500 a game yep. cash. And hello that, to the ATO out
0: there. Hello, how listen. are you going?
1: <laughs> no, I've already been caught up with that, <laughs> with um, with all the lawyer stuff. So, yeah, it, it was an interesting period and as one that where that money go, well, it went towards a wide range of different things, but mainly, you know, partying and, and drinking because the only way made that I felt normal, I felt I had a purpose and when people would think I was amazing and validate me was when I was drunk. And you go out and drink on the weekends and stuff, and you you, you call upon past efforts as a footballer, yeah. and people love you, and and you're and what they think you got all your life together, um, you know, and then that just wasn't the case. So I, I was escaping a massive issue with who I was as a person. Um, I was clouding the depression and that, and just put it in a box and just kept it there. Um, but then over time, it just became that box just stretched and stretched and stretched and stretched till it got
0: to the point where it just got too much you, you talked about drinking and you mentioned drugs yep um, which is again something it's yeah it's hard when you don't have much understanding we we sat down here at the start and I said gee my kids are four and five and we talked about growing up in the country and you were throwing some statistics about ice and if you use it for a second time I think you told me it was 84% chance of getting a, a, an addiction yeah. from yeah. it so yeah. can can you talk about your drug experience at all? Yeah, no, I'm more an open, mate, to talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. So, so how, does yeah. It, how does it first happen? you just yeah have a crack at a, a pill and it makes you feel good or...? Yeah, so the very first
1: time that I actually tried... Um, so cocaine was my um, addiction. Right. Um, so for me, the first time I tried it was actually... I never did a recreational drug during my AFL career. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't until 20, 2011 after I played a year at Port Melbourne. In the, in the Premiership year there, with Ezzy? with Ezzy, yeah, who was another great mentor of mine. And you both—is that
0: when you didn't lose a game?
1: That's right. Yeah, right. so I played in that year and. Uh, mate that was probably the heart one of the hardest years i think i've experienced away from the footy field and that was when the whole breakup thing with the, the misses at the time was happening and you know i was i was in and out living out the car while i was still playing at footy at port melbourne and um mate it was it was horrendous that period and it was a really tough time and easy mate for me was um here hear like tommy Hafey i heard dad talking about him a lot and easy was a, a reflection of that for me and I started probably my performance started dropping off a little bit during the mid-year and I was convinced that he was going to drop me I was convinced that I can't keep doing this and a couple of times he just sat me down in the club rooms and I remember when everyone had gone home after training him and I would be sitting in there um, and we'd be just talking about life and do you know you're living in your car or not? No, he didn't. No, he didn't know that. But he he knew I was having issues at home with the partner and, and yep. stuff like that, and work wasn't going great at all, and and, and all the above. And he knew about the 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 anxiety, stress, and the mental health issues and that that I was having, and he just acted as a as a reassurance for me with football because the crazy thing was is that to compartmentalize, he taught me all about compartmentalizing, and he basically opened up my world to use football as that euphoric feeling for two hours in a weekend, no matter what's going on in your life, you get the chance to go out and just be yourself and be normal and enjoy yourself and have fun. But the, the other side of that is when you get off the field, you've got to go back to your issues. The, the problem was is that I wasn't facing my issues off the field. So I was going from playing football, which I was addicted to, because I I didn't have to deal with anything else. But once I come off the footy field, I had to go back into my old, my shitty life, my shitty life. So that was a compressing component of of everything at the time as well. And yeah, mate. So for me, um, you know, my first time I tried it was after the grand final. Cocaine, cocaine. And we were walking across um uh, near crown casino here in melbourne and we were at the aquarium yeah the, the, mm. the footpath there so we we're walking across there with it with a couple of other blokes and um yeah that, that's the first time i tried it was on that footbridge as we we're walking across um yeah towards crown because it's pretty early in the morning we've been partying pretty pretty solidly as you can imagine and uh, we're walking over to get a hotel room for the night uh, just to hang out there and stuff stay out of trouble and yeah we're well, just the first time I tried it mate and uh, the feeling I guess it gave me was I guess I just felt like I was part of the part of the group part of the boys and I was enjoying it and I lived in the moment and I felt so innocent, mate. It felt very innocent. It was just something that I tried and who would have thought that, you know, you fast forward three three years of your life that you'd be relying on it towards the end of it, yeah, which I guess that's another side of the story I say is you don't know what's going to happen. I, and I, I genuinely did feel that i just, I'll just try it, yeah? No big deal. Everyone else is doing it. I'll just do it. Um, but, yeah, it played a big part of my life four years later. What is...
0: What does becoming reliant on cocaine mean? You use the word reliant. Mm-hmm. What does that mean?
1: Yeah, so I guess I felt like um, probably the last six, four months of the four-year cyclone, I was probably using every second day, um, if not every every day. So how much does that cost? A lot. Yeah, a lot.
0: Like fifty bucks
1: or five hundred bucks a lot. Uh well a bag a gram of cocaine is three hundred and fifty bucks. Right. Yeah, yeah. So it's not it's not cheap. Um, but for me it was something that I, I in my stupid mind I, I was I was validating that, that I needed that and it's a cost that I could find and, and get. So I was still playing country footy and stuff. I had the money there. So all that was going towards something and it was towards that habit. Um so essentially I yeah, mate. Oh, reliant basically for me meant that I couldn't function right without it.
0: If you missed last week's episode of the Howie Games, you missed the coach of the Socceroos, Ange Postacoglu, a man who is bursting with passion for the game that he loves. I mean, you spoke about, you know, Cathy Freeman and, and I, I, I kind of related also to the America's Cup. There was a time where you say, well, you know, no other country can really win an America's Cup. Australia certainly can't win an America's Cup. I can imagine Cathy Freeman as a young Aboriginal girl, no-one told her you could win an Olympic gold medal. It's just out of the world, out of this world. And I think the World Cup's the same. I think, you know, at this, we sit here and we say we can't win a World Cup. Well, we can, but imagine what it would do for us as a nation if we did win it. That was Ange Postacoglu on last week's episode of the Howie Games. Let's rejoin Jake. This is a, a, this is a really dumb question, but I'm going to ask okay. it anyway. This is, comes from someone that um, hasn't tried cocaine and watches it in Sopranos or in the movies, you know what I mean? Like, that's – it's, a, it's yeah. that's, uh, my lack of knowledge here is extraordinary, yeah. which is, I guess, not a bad thing. Um, do you get it? Is it is it like a seedy bloke that you buy it off? Like, is it is it a back alley type situation or it doesn't actually – and as I said, this is a stupid yeah. question. You look at no. me strangely, but <laughs> no. you know what I mean, the mechanics yeah. of it?
1: No, look, it, it's it's certainly not um, – it's not that hard to get your hands on. Right. Really? Um, you, you, you go out now – and I've been out for a very long time, but even during that period, mate, you knew who they were at the clubs and that who had who had the gear, right? Um, uh, so it wasn't hard to get your hands on. And no, it's not it's not your backyard, you know, alleyway kind of exchange. It's a simple, and probably people that who look just like you and I, mate, would be the dealers in that inside a nightclub at the time, um, and everything from cocaine right through to speed, ecstasy. Um, ice isn't as relevant in clubs. Um, it's more kind of a, a social environment at home. Did you, or did you not try that. ice? You- I never did ice. No, and I think I missed that generation gap there, type of thing. Ice has been really relevant the last couple of years. where yeah. I've been, you know, I've been sober for that long. So, um, I think the the, the 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 party drug for me was cocaine. That that was it. And essentially, you can't, you couldn't go out. I, I couldn't go out without being asked for it or being asked if i want some right um so yeah and it's still the same now mate it it really is and i hear my mates and they go out all the time they always say you can't go anywhere without seeing it or someone's on it or being asked for it or you know do i want any or whatever it is so it's not yeah yeah it's definitely manufactured by those type of people um there's no doubt about that um so it's not manufactured in you know nice little pharmacy type of environment with sterile style yeah no it's not it's made out of your bathtubs essentially with all the chemicals that you find underneath your sink pretty much including other things like glass and and ketamine and
0: stuff like that so what's what's the feeling like there's a last question i'm gonna ask you about this what's the feeling like when um do you want it do you need it do you desire it what's that addiction feeling like all the above is it? I'd probably say, yeah. And does it, it, like So does it dominate your thought at that point? It does
1: at that point, definitely. Right. Yeah, definitely. It's um, you, you, you find yourself, so for cocaine, for example, you, you'd have a bump, which would be a line, um, and then within 15, 20 minutes, you'd want another one. Um, whether or not that's good cocaine or not was a different story. Um, but, yeah, you, you, you needed it, you wanted it, you didn't want to be out without it, and that if you didn't have it, then what's the point of being out right that was the type of mentality that i was in um but you I certainly relied on it because when when i was on it when you're on it um the confidence that you have and the feeling that it gives you that euphoric feeling the numbness that it's right now we're here it's fun we're enjoying it and that in itself is an, is an addictive environment you know, the, you mix that with the alcohol and, and the girls and the music and all that type of stuff. Um, it was just a, a serious concoction of you know of, of a of a fun environment, and it's one that that I became addicted to. And you know, um, I'll talk more a little bit later on as to the educational side of um, what I had to learn about addiction and how it works in the brain in order to understand how. To to beat it, to fix it, uh, which is something that I learned through my psychiatrist, and that um, just education, mate, that was key for me. In kicking it and and, and beating it.
0: I guess there there came a seminal moment, you know. At the moment, we talked at the start that we were going to sort of go down into a valley and then go up the other side of the valley. I guess here we're approaching the bottom of the bloody valley, aren't we? Yeah, it was probably a little bit more depth to go. Right. Yeah,
1: yeah. So there there, there was a suicide attempt. Right, which um, is the bottom of the valley. Which is the complete bottom of the barrel, yeah. And pretty sure I've met the devil. Um, (laughs) And we've said g'day to each other and um, yeah, so it was a it was an interesting experience that one and it's one I'm very open with and it's still probably one that um, everyone says to me all the time, how do you go talking about it all well, the that's time? The, that's my yeah, next question. And it's, it's, it's hard, mate. It's bloody hard because there's still a part of me that I can't accept because like I said before, logically in my life and I know people listening to this would be like, but you had this and you had that, and I'm like, oh, I know, I know, I know, I know all this stuff. And logically, even now looking back, I think, how and why did I let myself get to that point? Um, but that's essentially addiction for you. In that, in that sentence, is I don't, I don't, know, I can't explain it. It's just something that overtook my life. And next thing you know, you, you're in it, and you rely on it, and I couldn't function without it. And, yeah. Um, so talking about it now, yes, it's, it's still difficult um, because I, I do. Physically remember the the moment that it, that it, that I tried to do it, and but part of that is still doing these things, mate. It's still it's it's helping me heal as well. So Talking the, about yeah, it. so the more I talk about it, the more I own it, the more I allow it to, I guess, people to see that depression now is a part of me. I'm not sitting here and saying that I'm cured. I'll never be cured, but I'm certainly sitting here saying that um, I'm in control of it today, and it is doable. And that there are ways to do it and manage your mental health, you know, moving forward. Which, it, for me, it was never about the drinking and the drugs that was the problem. It was the it was the depression, and why I felt like I needed to drink and do drugs because I was escaping that who I was inside, mm. and that who I was was that pain of um, failure and letting people down and all that type of stuff. So I was drinking to get away from that reality. And that's the only way that it that it started. So talking about it's tough, mate, but um, it certainly helps. And I've dedicated my life since starting the company outside the locker room. I've dedicated my life now to that's what I want to do moving forward. I want to educate and and share a story that's raw. It's in your face. It's reality. There's no pussyfooting around. No. This is this is real and it happens. And I work with kids today who have got stories like mine, if not worse, And, you know, I hear stuff that goes on a lot in local communities and you just don't hear that aspect of it. So the suicide thing is a certain... uh, It's a major kind of message that I I get across, but it's more about the prevention of allowing it to get to that point that I'm very passionate about. But it got to
0: that point with you. In your own mind, Mm. were you rational in your mind at that point? Yeah, so... Can I be very graphic?
1: Yeah. Oh. Um, so I a few things happened in my life at that time. So this is like at the very end of that four-year cyclone I spoke before. Um, so this was the, the last moment for me where I realized that I've got massive issues. I need to get help. Um, I had a, a partner of mine walk out because of, I was just out of, out of my mind, crazy, and she knew something was going on. So she walked out. To her credit, she tried to help so much, and she couldn't. She couldn't help. No, no one was going to help me at that point. And um, she walked out. My, my business that I had at the time, which was a small video production business that I was just doing to get by, um, was failing, and that was a reflection of who I was. So it was a, an accumulation of these different things that all happened at once. The perfect storm. Yeah, exactly. It all just came to a to a head, and I just said, "Stuff it. What's the point?" there's no point me being here and that's when i i had suicide tendencies but i never really considered it like i did in that moment and for me i'm a very black and white thinker and that was it decision was made done so that was a thursday i made a decision that come the monday i was going to try and uh, kill myself so i went out thursday night friday night saturday night sunday night with about four hours sleep um didn't see your family in that time didn't see my family in that time i was with mates who not my closest mates but people that i knew in that space who were going to be doing the same things um and just hung out with them, mate and did every drug under the sun and just intoxicated as you can imagine Mm. um come home on the on the monday morning Uh, a few things happened over that weekend which i'm actually writing a book at the moment which um, explains all that weekend in further depth um, but come the Monday morning I yeah I got home no one no one had a, a housemate who wasn't home at the time in an apartment and yeah I was I was in my in my bathroom and in my bathroom I essentially just stood in front of the mirror um, and you asked how was that moment um, I was very content I was in a good place and as crazy as that may sound I actually genuinely felt that this was the right thing to do in that very moment and I felt that my family now could move on and not worry about me um, because I knew that for the last four years they'd been stressed about what I was doing you know mum and dad knew that I was struggling with mental health clearly because of depression and stuff and then drinking they knew it was a problem but they never knew the extent of the drug use and where it got to um I felt like they wouldn't have to burn anymore. Me mates wouldn't have to worry about me anymore. And I, I, felt, I felt at peace and I felt that this was the right thing to do at that time. And for me, what makes my attempt uh, probably slightly a little bit different is the fact that I physically and emotionally committed to the act where a lot of suicides are, are committed and they're successful or a lot of them just don't actually go through with it. Um, where I physically, I, I had a hair dry cord and I had wrapped it around a um, uh, towel hook in my in my bathroom, and I, I attempted to hang myself. Um, now, in that moment, like I said, I was I was content and it, 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 it was going to happen. And the only reason it didn't is because that cord snapped, um, and it wasn't because I tried to stop it. It was because you know the, that cord did snap. And in that moment, um, once I hit the ground if if i could have hit rock bottom i'm pretty sure i went through it because when you when you go through that attempt and try to kill yourself and you, and you fail at that that's almost like another low on top of you can't even do that right Jeez. you know what i mean and you just you just you're in a complete pit of nothing but nothing pretty much um my mum had been trying to call me that morning because one thing us men don't understand my is that mother instinct yeah uh she knew something was i didn't answer the phone um and then in that moment as i was lying on my bathroom floor my dad tried to call me and i've mentioned this in the Herald Sun article and and on scn the other week is you know my father and i we, we we got along but he was very hard and very fair and um, so for him To call me At that moment For some reason I, I took that call and, and dad literally Did save my life There's no doubt um, So Straight away I just broke down Hysterically Did you tell him, him what? In, Yeah I told him I said I just Tried to hang myself You, know, you need to come get me
0: What did your dad say
1: uh, He just said mate Stay right there We're coming And that was basically it Yeah so he Jumped off the phone um, And I just stayed On the bathroom floor Um my mum had called my current business partner at the time and then she came around and got me and we went back to her apartment um and we, we waited there till mum and dad rocked up and I, I i've never been so ashamed in my whole entire life than that moment when i couldn't i couldn't look mum and dad in the eye and i was shaking and i was crying repeatedly i didn't want to let my business partner go like I was holding her and hugging her um and yeah so that was a uh, just a really ex- you know an, an extreme moment I guess of my life well, yeah um, we yeah
0: uh, we yeah uh, when did you think Oh, I'm happy that it didn't work rather than I wish that it did
1: yeah, that wasn't probably for a, probably a good few months after it right i reckon yeah because so, so you had a couple of months where i was like "Geez, i wish that yeah because I, I felt like that i felt that i shouldn't be here i guess and i felt like i failed at that it's only a matter of time before it happens again right that type of mentality um i had a moke, so from there i went back to the farm and then the next couple of days after i kind of got myself together a little bit I'd went in and what my mum had called me psychologist who I'd worked with through my AFL career who was Maddie Clements who worked at the AFL PA and she was amazing for me during that period helping me deal with a lot of different things um, including my relationship issues that I had at the time and she knew my background so she knew something was up and I'd come in and I sat down with her and Probably uh, the, the turning point for me when I realised that, that this is a serious illness, that it's not the drinking and drugs, it, it is the mental health that I was going through, and and the actual uh, the, the depression is. Um, I sat in front of Maddie Clements, and I was I was still shaking, and I was still really really unstable. And she got the phone out, and she put on loudspeaker, and she called my mum in front of me, and she goes to my mum, look. I'm with Jake look he's going to be fine he's okay Um, I just he's going to come back home to the farm and spend a couple more days with you guys just in that environment until he settles down I just need you to make sure that every gun's locked up on the property so he doesn't have access to the guns and yeah um, that's pretty much how my heart felt at that time and um, I just I just sat there and i had me i mean head in my hands and you know i was crying and in that moment i heard that and my mum was on the other hand and it was on loudspeakers i could hear her agreeing and asking these questions and stuff but that moment that she said that i just saw Jacob, what are you doing mate you know like you, you not only are you, are you doing this to yourself but that's your mum, you know and she's if it wasn't for her You wouldn't be here One And two She's done so much for you I can name on one hand mate, The mm. amount of games Of footy she's missed In my whole career And yep. For me That just hit me Right in the heart And just said you got to get help now Enough's enough So, so unfortunately so That, that it, was the seminal moment That was the moment That I realised That i got to stop Putting that depression In the box And thinking that It's going to go away Because ultimately It, it just Was going to catch up with me And it did it in a big way Um But the only way that I dealt with it was through the, the alcohol and, and drugs, which was contributing, as we all know, yeah. um, is a depressant even further, uh, which led me to the suicide attempt. And in that moment, mate, I just I realised that I had to get help and... So what we did was we put a plan together and I went back home and then we, um, Maddie, um, put together a referral system that I went out and met with my psych- a psychiatrist who specialised in um, not only, you know, your everyday person but more specifically in sport, which I really liked because I thought he was able to understand where I'd come from from a pressured point of view um, and he helped me basically break down my whole, my whole life. And that was just a a, a small stepping stone to a a big, long lead of development and working with him again. It's what I call my rehab period. Um, So I was in and out of there um, for two weeks, pretty much every second day working with him, and then it went out to like once a week, uh, once uh, what was it? Once a fortnight, and then once a month, and then once every three, four months, and now it's only like once every six months that we're at right now um so yeah it's something that will always be going but through that working with him i i um you know i realized that there is a component when it comes to mental health and depression of understanding it and learning it so through that period i i accepted that you know what depression is a part of me now forever and the minute that i stopped trying to fight it and trying to get rid of it out of my life it's almost like that weight just was removed from my shoulders and then I realised that you know what I'm actually going to try and become good friends with it and try and learn about it and, and understand it and that way I can put strategies in place in my life to ensure that I'm in control now moving forward um, the minute that I feel like I'm in control of things is the minute I stop working on it right. is eventually when it could potentially happen again again and I know that, and it, that there's an aspect of being responsible for that as well. For me, I used to get caught up going out and partying with my friends and that, thinking that I was just like them. When, I, 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 you know, mentally, I'm, I'm I'm not. You're partying for two very different reasons. Exactly. Yeah, they're partying because they work Monday to Friday. They get all, just have a drink for the boys and yep. carry on, and they wake up um, with a hangover Sunday, and they go back to being a builder or a tradie on Monday, and then they're fine by Wednesday. For me it was it wouldn't stop Saturday night it'd go into a Sunday night and sometimes Monday morning and then i wouldn't I'd be on a buddy in bed for the next four days because I didn't want to move and didn't want to get out and The only way that I could feel better about myself is that come Friday is to go back on that train again and escape it for three more days and then the same thing would happen again and just keep going and going and going and going and that's Th- kind of where I realized that I can't. I can't think that I'm just like my best mate. I can't just go out and drink with him all the time and try and keep up with him because the way we respond to things are just completely different. So that's kind of an empowering moment for me as well that I realised that, you know what, it's just not,
0: I'm not like that. So it's possible to be in the position where you are now where you've said to me, you know, you've embraced it, it's part of you. Mm-hmm. so for the people that are listening out there now that are listening to this that might be having this part of their life or uh, part of someone that loves life or their family's life what what can you say to it's too big a thing that you've explained to me. You've, you've mm. blown me away, the, the depth of feeling and understanding. It's too it's too big a thing for you to say, right, well, these are the top three ways to avoid depression. Yeah. No, you know yeah. what I mean? It's yeah. it's not even a, a conversation we could have, but is there a starting point? Is there a starting point for people out there that are listening that go, going, oh, yeah, I, I can see that in my brother or my sister or myself or my mum or my dad?
1: Yeah, so it, it is such a big thing, mate. You're right. And I guess there's the, a couple... Components I'd like to touch on, if I can, and, and I guess for the for the individual themselves who feels like they're they're struggling, um, is to essentially, you need to be aware, and the moment that you're aware, of that it's happening in your life, don't push it aside. Yeah, you, you hear it all the time. You you have to speak to someone because, that moment, and you asked me before when did I when when did I feel grateful that it didn't mm. work. Um, that was essentially going a couple months later, a moment when I was with my nieces and my nephews. And I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, oh, what if I wasn't here? I wouldn't get to see my nieces and nephews and they would never get to know their Uncle Jake for the rest of their lives. And I can guarantee you right now, it's not, it's not worth it. And to go down that path, because oh, I've been in that moment, it, the minute you're aware and you feel like things are hard, there's someone in your life right now brother, sister, mum, or dad, best mate who generally wants to know and they want to help and there is a way forward. It doesn't mean you need to go see a a doctor straight away. It doesn't mean you need to go see a psychologist. All it means that you need to have a conversation with someone because what it does is it just, it helps you feel better. Just instantly, you just feel like you got some shit off your chest Mm. and it's out there and you, you tell someone you trust. So that would be the first thing I would say to people the other side of it is um you know uh, if you if you you feel like you got a friend or a family member who's who you've noticed some behavioral change in whether they're not showing up for work um or they're not you know they're not as motivated as they used to be or something's dropping off their fitness is dropping off or something like that it's a tough one to approach because what i say for those who want to help friends and that who are going through it is um and this is what worked for me and i help a lot of parents with In order to to approach someone you feel like who's going through a tough period, you need to be completely selfless. It can't be anything to do with you, so then might you might actually go up and ask them. Look, we've noticed—is everything all right, mate? Because we've noticed you haven't been coming to work or you, you, this or that, and they might turn around, and most likely they might turn around and say, "I'm fine, everything's great," which is the great Australian way—should mm. be right—that mm-hmm. type of message. And a lot of men between 30 and 55 are brilliant at it, hiding yeah. behind masks. So, at that moment when you ask them, you can't make it about you and you can't get frustrated or angry if that person doesn't want to tell you in that moment because the minute you do that, you're actually pushing off more pressure and anxiety on that person because the last thing that they want to do, they're not telling you because they don't want you to be burdened with their issues. So what you got to do is is if your friend or family member, you know who it is and, you, and you, you know them better than anyone, so you need to get them in a comfortable environment. So for a young man um, who I might speak with about an issue and that I'm not going to go to a cafe and have a latte with him and sit across from a table and look at him in the eyes and ask him mate what's wrong something's going on he's going to be intimidated and he's not going to tell me the best environment I can get him in for a man to man conversation is driving in the car because you're looking both looking forward <laughs> and you don't feel like you need you're not not being judged by looking someone in the eye or the other environment is essentially get them in and a sport thing so i'd go kick the footy or or play basketball or something and you get them in an environment that they're comfortable and by doing that you're breaking that wall a little bit and then you just essentially just ask a question like you care like a normal person who who generally cares mate what's going on is everything okay so they're going to feel more comfortable in that moment to then to open up um so there's two aspects of that and females are no different You know, you're not going to take a female to the pub for a pot and palmer, are you? You're not. If your girlfriend's struggling, perhaps a latte at a cafe is more accommodating for them. Go get your nails done. Sit beside them. Talk to them about life. Talk. Talk and just get them to encourage to talk. Not be so upfront and confronting because that's on your terms. And that's when they're going to turn around and probably say, no, look, I'm fine. Everything's fine. Don't worry about it. Um, so you've you got to be very selfless in that in that moment. So that's some advice that I give to, you know, if you are going through it yourself um, and it, you feel like things are changing and you, not, you can't explain it, um, you need to be aware. And, and that, that's a um, far more empowering thing rather than letting, letting it get to my point where the drinking started and then the drugs and then the suicide. And, you know, like I said, there's someone in their lives who want, who wants to know and that, that, that can help. Um, the other thing is, well, a lot of people feel like, the, you know, the first thing they think is, oh, I've got to go see a doctor. It's going to cost money. I've got to see a psychologist. My psychologist was like $400 to sit there for half an hour and talk, um, you know, but there's ways around that you go see your gp you can get a mental health plan right you know and they can actually put you on a referral process where you don't have to pay for i think i think it's up to about eight sessions to go and see someone so the financial thing should just straight off the table don't even worry about that you know because some people are in positions and they're suffering maybe because of career or work so finances is probably contributing to their stress and anxiety um so that needs to be taken off the table go see your gp and tell them how you're feeling um Another issue that I find working with uh, young adults is that they go to a GP. Some GPs just really annoy me because this is what they do. They ask probably three questions and then based on those three questions, I'll give antidepressants, Right. which isn't the way to go. If you feel like that they play a role straight away and your doctor, you know, go for it. But you're entitled to a second opinion. And my my advice is if you go see your GP and they ask you less than, you know, five questions and it puts you straight on antidepressants, my advice would be go see another GP. Right. Go see another GP and tell them how you're feeling because what should happen is that they should refer you to a a psychiatrist or a psychologist because a psychiatrist has the ability to clinically diagnose what it is that you're going through, if it is at that point, and properly diagnose you with the right... Medication, because we're all different we all respond to medications differently. Um, so that would be the key aspect to getting support.
0: Jake, in the in the, in the world of radio or TV now, it's like we uh, were talking at the start about the great benefit of Pod- podcast in the in the world of the modern media now. Somehow, I would find a way to put this little box yeah. and put a little neat wrapper on the end of it and come up with a comment, and everyone would think, "Oh, well, that's a." a great way to finish I, I don't it's yeah. <laughs> completely beyond my experience to have those words except to say you, you're here now and you've you, set up outside the locker room and you're trying to help people it's a bloody long way away from sitting on the floor of your bathroom isn't it absolutely
1: mate um, I'm very grateful to be in this very moment right now there's no doubt and I guess that's the biggest message for me is like I said I've been in that moment and I've felt it and I've smelt it and I know what it feels like it's, it's not it's not what you think because I've come out the other side and I've had that realisation that, shit, how would mum and dad be? How would my brothers be? How would my nieces and nephews be? Um, you know, and that doesn't sit well with me at all, thinking that I was in that position. Unfortunately, um, you, you know, there's suicide rates in Australia, you know, are, are, are quite high. And um, there's some kids who, who can't get to that point And unfortunately, I do take their lives and, you know, it is something that that I work with every single day, you know, working with young adults around everything, mate, from bullying at school right through to stress and anxiety, self-harm, drugs and alcohol, Um, but the common thread is essentially that they lack purpose. And they lack kind of direction, and vision, and they don't understand who they are as, as individuals. And the best way to go about it is through education and stories like mine, who you know can hopefully open their eyes to a better way. Um, as to okay, well, perhaps that's a, that's an option rather than rather than that one. But I'm also a big advocate made on um, you. You don't need to be suffering a mental health illness to to stay in control of your mental health. Mm. Um, <clears throat> you know, it's everyday people. You know, like yourself, man. I'm sure you have your, you have your moments where yeah. things are crappy and stuff like that. But you've got your ways to deal with it. And you know, my my psychiatrist taught me about coping mechanisms. And coping mechanisms are essentially uh, tools and strategies that we use um, to help us stay in control of our happiness, if you want to call it that. So rather than waiting for your life to fall into a heap before you start throwing your arms up in the air and getting help and things are too hard. Coping mechanisms allow us to stay in control of that. So rather than you know kind of in- intervening before it gets to that point. So what I do now is to, to share with the people listening is um, I do three things every single week that keep me mentally healthy. And that is essentially um, the beach I live in Port Melbourne, one street back, and as you know, I go to Ocean Grove a lot, Yeah, um, and I spend time in the salt and sand. There's something spiritual about it, mate. I put my feet in the sand, and I'm, I'm by myself, and I'm able to connect. Oh, yeah. None, none of this iPhone stuff yeah. or n- none of this technology stuff. Just get by yourself for an hour and just, just relax because you allow your mind just to almost filter through all the crap that you're telling yourself and become a little bit more understanding is what factual is going on in your life because we can tell ourselves stories sometimes mm. right so that hour allows me to to declutter a lot of crap the other thing is music i sing poorly i play badly <laughs> i do all the above i don't care mate it is for me music is the way that i express myself i listen to everything mate from um, hardcore metal right through to justin bieber it doesn't bother me um, yeah. music for me is my outlet um, i do play instruments and I find meditation hard it's not for everyone so music acts as that for me um and i get that release Uh, it's something i've just got in my life tattooed all over my body love it the third thing i do is family so before i come here today mate and and, and sat down and chat with yourself and i spent out on the farm um i go home every friday morning and spend time with the family um, because i connect again because essentially for four years i wasted My 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 connection with mum and dad and and my brothers and and my nieces and my nephews and you know I constantly feel like I'm for the rest of my life um, I'll be trying to make up that time. So two of those things are by myself. So the music and the beach and Mm. the third thing is in a social environment. So I selected my family. Me going out and catching up with mates at the pub on a Friday night isn't probably the right environment to be in no so going home spending time with family Um, part of my rehabilitation with my psychiatrist I like to make this very clear as well is for me it was never about sobriety for the rest of my life Um, I was sober for a very long period after that um, but for me I want to be in a position where I can go and have a few drinks yep and be more controlled Um, so I've learnt my environments who i should be around who i shouldn't be around there's people in my life mate i had to get rid of straight away because they were contributing to the drug use and stuff like that um so you know this now i make it more periodical so uh, weddings or things like that i'll go to and i'll, I'll have a beer and i'll enjoy myself and I, I do i do you know like to have a beer with mates but it's certainly not i try to be home by one o'clock and it's you know, it's more controlled fashion than what it to what it used to be, because now I've I educated and learnt the strategies on, on how to how to maintain it and control it, not letting it get out of hand and becoming something bigger than bigger than what I am, ultimately.
0: Uh, Jake, thanks for having a chat with us on the Howie Games. Um, I, as I said, I can't put this in a, in a little package with a bow on it, except to say that, um, thanks for educating me straight off thanks for being so honest and open and you know I, i'm i just hope everything goes well for you from here and you're talking about your mum and what she went through i think we, you understand even more when you have some kids what that bond mm. is and I, you know i hope it all goes beautifully for you mate you continue down this path you're on and thanks for having a chat with us mate it's been um an eye-opener to say the least
1: yeah, mate, i appreciate the opportunity i really do Good thanks you, mate. mate cheers
0: As I said at the start, not a typical episode of the Howie Games, but hopefully you got something out of it, your family members get something out of it. I can't thank Jake enough for sitting down with someone he didn't know and bearing his soul like he did. It's tremendously courageous, and I'm just so happy that Jake is in a good place at the moment. Plenty more of the Howie Games to come. We'll be back next Thursday, as always. Until then, peace and love.
1: And we can do it if we try, try, try